I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Our text today is verse 1 through verse 7 in a message entitled, Pray for Everyone. And we've been thinking about distinctives of a gospel-shaped church, and this is certainly one of those. And I want to work through this passage uh, section by section, so we'll read the scripture in that way as uh, we work through the scripture together. And if you'll make your way there, I'll be there here in just a moment. There's a story about a man named Charlie Peace. The story is from July of 1854. Charlie Peace was a well-known criminal in London, and he was preparing to be hung for his crimes. The Anglican Church, which had a ceremony for everything, even had a ceremony for hanging people. So when Charlie Peace was marched to the gallows, a priest read these words from the prayer book. Those who die without Christ experience hell, which is the pain of forever dying without the release which death itself can bring. When these chilling words were read, Charlie Peace stopped in his tracks. He turned to the priest and he shouted in his face, Do you believe that? priest didn't immediately respond, and he asked once again, even louder, do you believe that? The priest was taken aback by the verbal assault, and he stammered for a moment, and he said, well, I suppose I do. Charlie said, well, I don't. But if I did, I'd get down on my hands and knees and crawl all over Great Britain, even if it were paved with pieces of broken glass if I could rescue one person from what you just told me. How concerned are we about people around us who are perishing without Jesus Christ? Is this a priority for us individually? And is this the priority for us collectively? We might ask the question, what can we do when we look around the world and we know that there are yet billions of people who do not know the Lord? It can be overwhelming almost to the point of paralyzing our efforts. And we can feel like we can't really make a difference. So we ask ourselves, what can we do and what must we do? What we can do is we can pray. But that's not the only thing that we're to do. Praying motivates our obedience, as we'll see in this passage. And God in his sovereign will works in response to the prayers of his people. So we believe foundationally in prayer because that's how God has designed us to communicate with him through prayer, in the Holy Spirit, instructed by the word, and God responds to the prayers of his people. Now the Apostle Paul is guiding young Timothy on how to lead the church at Ephesus. And he's given him instructions that are to play out in the corporate gatherings of the church as well as in the day-to-day activities of the church. And prayer is to be the number one priority, but he's not speaking only of prayer in general. He's speaking especially about prayer for the salvation of the lost. And as we will see, he includes several words and phrases that show us what he is emphasizing. All men, all 
God our Savior who desires all men to be saved. And then he turns attention toward the end uh, to the mediator between God and men. So Paul is pointing to the need to pray for people. And we are to pray for all of them. And that leads me to my first point. We are urged to pray for everyone. We are urged to pray for everyone. Now let's pick up reading and we'll read verse 1 and then part of verse 2. First of all then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. For kings and all those who are in authority. First of all, is a statement about importance. What Paul says after this is of first place. He says, what I'm about to tell you is of utmost importance. This was what was weighing heavily on the apostle's mind and on his heart. And the overall context which follows this is in regard to instruction for the public worship of the church. But here he's wanting to impart some words on the priority of prayer. And as followers of Jesus, we have this incredible privilege because you and I have been invited to pray. We've been invited to approach the throne of God individually, and then we've been instructed to approach the throne of God collectively as the body of Christ. And what prayer does is prayer connects the natural to the supernatural. Prayer connects the physical to the spiritual. Prayer connects the temporal to the eternal. And there are four different words that are used here for prayer in verse 1. They are all similar, but they also demonstrate different aspects of prayer. Petitions would be supplication. It just basically means to ask for something. It's asking for something with a bold confidence with a sense that you're going to get an answer for what you've asked for. And we know that these entreaties or these petitions or these supplications come from a sense of need. We recognize our sense of deficiency and we understand God's sufficiency. And it is the space between our deficiency and God's sufficiency that moves us to pray. And in it, God is giving us this privilege to ask him for what we need. Did not Jesus instruct us in Matthew 7 and verse 7? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So we're told that we can ask and seek and knock. And God will hear and answer our petitions. Now, before I go to the next word, let me give you a word of encouragement and hope here, because sometimes when we pray, we don't get the answer that we were looking for, or we might not get the answer that we were looking for in the timing that we were looking for. And that can discourage us. And we begin to think that God's not listening to our prayer or somehow we're praying the wrong thing. And it is possible to pray for the wrong thing with the wrong motives and the wrong reasons. But it is also very evident that God teaches us some things when we pray. He teaches us that his timetable is not always the same as our timetable. We think in things, in in terms of things that are immediate, momentary, 
instant. We expect something to happen very quickly. And what seems like a long time to us is just a moment to God because he is the eternal God. We also learn that when we pray, that not only is God's timetable not the exact as our timetable many times, but that God can see the big picture. So sometimes we're praying for certain things and we're asking God to do certain things in the moment and it seems right to us and it seems good to us in the moment. But God sees the beginning from the end and he sees everything in between. So often he answers the prayer differently or in a different timing than what we would have anticipated. But it's because it's for our good and his glory. And he's working something out that is not evident to us, but it is abundantly clear to him. And God teaches us in that patience and endurance and what it means to persist in prayer. And as we do that in our petitions, it grows us in our dependence and our faith in God. The second word is prayers, which is a general term for prayer to God. It's a reminder to us that we have so many needs. We might come to God in repentance because there are things that are out of line in our relationship with him. We come to God for wisdom. Uh, That wisdom gives us the ability to rightly apply the knowledge that we have. And we're asking God to give us wisdom so that we can live for him. We need guidance in specific situations and particular circumstances where we're asking God to lead us. And uh, when we sing that song, he leadeth me, oh blessed thought, it's not just a song that we're singing, but it's something that we're connecting to in our prayer lives as well because God is leading us along the way. There are a whole host of things that we pray for and that God hears us in. And one of the things that I would encourage you in in your devotional life, if you've never made this a practice, is maybe you're not a good journaler or you're not consistent about it or you don't do it with a lot of depth. One of the things I would encourage you to do at a minimum is write down the things that you are praying for, write down your prayer list, and then keep up with that as you continue to pray and as God answers. And I promise you what you will see as you pray and you write those prayer requests down and then you go back and you look and see what God has done is that God answers prayer on a daily basis, periodically, very evidently, and you can see how God is at work in your life. Sometimes it's small things, sometimes it's something that is very dramatic that God does for you. But when you see that, what it does is it shows you the faithfulness of God in your life and the faithfulness of God in his work. Then intercessions points to the idea of someone going into the presence of an authority or a king and boldly approaching on behalf of another. It's the same word that is used for the intercession of the Holy Spirit and also the intercession of Jesus on our behalf. Romans 8 and verse 27 says, And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Hebrews 7 and verse 25 says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. He always lives to make intercession for us. So I want to encourage you in this as well in your prayer life. Sometimes you might feel like you're alone and you don't know what to pray. 
God already knows what's on your heart, so be transparent before him. And if you're asking him to fill you with his spirit and to guide you by his word, even when you don't know what to pray for specifically, the Holy Spirit will intercede on your behalf. And he will take your need to God. And he will intercede for your good and for God's glory. And not only that, but Jesus, our Savior, the Son of God, lives to make intercession for us. So the one who saved you is the one who also sustains you and makes intercession for you at the throne of God. He makes intercession for you when your life is not in line with the holiness of God. He makes intercession for you when those accusations are brought against you. He makes intercession for you when you have a specific need. And if we believe this to be true and God is inviting us to intercede and we know that the Spirit and the Son are interceding on our behalf, then certainly we would take it seriously that we ought to be interceding on behalf of others and asking God for those needs that need to be met. And then the last word is thanksgivings. Thanking God for his blessings and his graciousness to answer our prayers. And I think gratitude undergirds a spirit of prayer because we're saying, God, thank you for receiving us into your presence. God, thank you for hearing our prayers. And now, God, thank you in advance for what you're going to do or thank you for what you've already done. And that spirit of thanksgiving transforms life with God. Now, we need to pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. But every human being has the same need. It doesn't matter what culture you're from. It doesn't matter what nation you're from. It doesn't matter what your life experiences have been. Every human being has the same greatest need. And that is to be right with God, their creator. And here, Paul highlights praying for those in positions of authority in government. And he's working toward an end of why he's instructing us to pray in these ways. And when you look at that instruction in the modern environment that we live in, you might say, well, Paul must have been in a good government environment. Certainly for him to command and to commend such a thing, he was in a good situation. Well, not exactly. Actually, it would have included Nero, who is thought to have had Paul and Peter executed, This was the ruler who lit his gardens in the evenings with Christians who had been covered with pitch and set afire. This is the environment in which Paul was instructing the church to pray. And Christians at times had been accused of being subversive to the government because they claimed a a higher Lord than Caesar. But the reality is they were good citizens who prayed for those in earthly authority. But what's the difference? They prayed for those who were in positions of earthly authority, but they did not pray to those who were in earthly authority. They prayed for those who were making these key decisions, but there was a distinction of what their hope was in and where their faith was placed and what they anticipated the outcomes to be. The Romans had permitted subjected peoples to worship their own gods, but it was in in the context of requiring them to show their loyalty to Rome. And by showing their loyalty to Rome, they would also have to worship the goddess Roma in the spirit of the emperor. 
because Jewish people were known to worship one God to the exclusion of all others, Rome actually allowed them to pray and even to sacrifice for the health and the well-being of the society. And the prayers were offered up in the synagogue, showing loyalty of the Jewish institutions to the Roman state. But even that had its limits. You might remember from history that the zealots decided that they were going to overthrow the Roman yoke for God. And uh, that act occurred in AD 66. And it constituted what was a virtual declaration of war against Rome. And it was several years after Paul actually wrote this letter. And Christian public prayers for the emperor and for the province and for the local officials had the effect of showing that the Christians were good citizens in the society that they lived in. Now, obviously, in a modern context, in a New Testament way, in our understanding even of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and his description of us being salt and light, we understand that this is a significant responsibility, but it is not an easy one. And we understand that our role in the plan of God is that we pray for all kinds of people, but we also know that it's easy to pray for people that we like. It's easy to pray for our family and our friends and people close to us that we care about personally. And Paul says, hold up, because your prayer's got to extend beyond that. And even as Jesus said, we're to pray for our enemies. And that is, at times, an incredible, incredibly difficult thing to do, but a very necessary thing to do if we're going to be faithful to the word. Second, we are urged to pray for everyone because it changes our lives. Now, we are to pray these prayers in part, according to verse 2, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We're praying for people in positions of earthly authority uh, to keep the order, but also to live and to let live. We're praying for freedom of religion, not freedom from religion. And this is one of the uh, points of friction in the current age that we live in because there are many people who would be proponents of freedom from religion in our culture and society and government and so on. That's not what we're praying for. We're praying for freedom of religion because we know that a person's faith cannot be coerced, nor should a person's faith be denied. And we understand the responsibility that God has given us. But what we're praying for is so that our lives would be changed, so that we would be impacted. And the idea of tranquility here is because we're not troubled from within. So think about tranquility this way. You say, listen, I'm living a tranquil life. What does that mean? Well, basically it means that you have a calmness about you. You have a peace that comes from within. You have a settled disposition because your faith is in God. You're not allowing everything else to keep you from being calm and tranquil in your life. And this is something that we all need because we live in the age of anxiety. People are anxious and worried about everything. There's this constant tension that we struggle with. And if we live tranquil lives and if we live quiet lives, it's because we don't allow the things that are from without to trouble us within. Now think about it this way. If you've flown very much 
uh, you've had the experience of the captain coming on the intercom, and if you can understand him, uh, you would understand that what he's telling you is to put on your seatbelt because the weather's getting a little bit choppy. It's a little bit turbulent, right? And when the captain tells you to put your seatbelt on and you, you hear the little ding and then you look above you and the red light goes on and the seatbelt light is lit up, what it's telling you is that you're flying through an area that could be potentially dangerous and you need to have your seatbelt on if you encounter that turbulence. But eventually, if it's a very long flight, you hear the ding again and the captain comes on and a garbled things and you say, okay, I can take my seatbelt off now. But you know what the problem is with the modern age that we live in? The turbulence never stops. It's constant. There's a bombardment about, of things that you ought to be anxious about, that the world's getting you stirred up about. And there's all this conflict and there's all these things on the outside that are swirling around us. And if we get caught up in that stuff, we will not have tranquility within, nor will we live quiet lives without. And yet the Bible says that we can have peace with God and we can have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding that will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So you've got to decide, am I going to live bound up by the anxiety of the age, by the worry of things that are swirling around me, or am I going to live a tranquil and quiet life and rest in the Lord because he's sovereign He's got my best interest in mind. We know the, how it all ends, and we can trust in him. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 11 and 12, Paul writes, Seek to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. So to seek to or aspire to lead a quiet life is not escapism. Now, I want to spend just a moment on this because we also trend toward escapism in our culture. Here's what I mean by that. We're constantly thinking if we could just escape this pressure that we're experiencing, then life would be better. If I could just get more days at the beach, then my life would just be grand. Or if I could just get more days off, then it would just all be better. Well, let me ask you this. What if you don't get more days at the beach? Or what if when you get those days at the beach, you're still worried about the same stuff you were worried about when you went? You see, if you're thinking that way, you're thinking about an escapist mentality that says, if somehow I can just have this experience, if somehow I can just change the situation, my life is going to be all better and my situation is going to be settled. And we know intuitively that that's not true. We know that's not going to solve our problems. So in the day-to-day, what we have to learn to do is to seek to aspire to lead a quiet life no matter what the circumstance is around us because it's not the circumstance that is driving our quiet lives. It is our relationship with God that is driving our quiet lives. And he never changes. And we are desiring not to escape from something, but rather to fulfill God's call on our lives. What if in trying to escape something, you miss out on what God's ultimate call is for you? What if you miss out on living the purpose that the Lord has for you because 
you're trying to get away from whatever situation it is that's worrying you. And the way you live your life, according to what Paul teaches here, directly affects your testimony and your ability to lead people to a relationship with Jesus. Paul refers to godliness 10 times in the pastoral epistles, referring to our devotion to God in sincerity. Godliness is who we are on the inside, and then our dignity is the demeanor that we demonstrate that godliness with as we seriously serve God. Jerry Bridges wrote in The Practice of Godliness, he said, no higher compliment can be paid to a Christian than to call him a godly person. He might be a conscientious parent, a zealous church worker, a dynamic spokesman for Christ, or a talented Christian leader. But none of these things matter, Bridges says, if at the same time he is not a godly person. So here's my question for you. If you were honest today, could you describe yourself as a person who is pursuing godliness? Would those who know you the best, who know you in times of stress, who know you in times of trouble, would they say that you're a person who's pursuing godliness? But I got a better, better question for you even than that. Do you think that God would describe you as a godly person, as a person who is pursuing him? If not, that's what we should be pursuing as Christians, to train ourselves to be godly. You say, how can we do that? Well, the Bible says that God has given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. And if we believe that God has given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness, then when we pursue godliness, it will be an experience that we have and we will grow in the likeness of Christ. Because remember, it is the express will of God that you and I would be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's what God wants for your life. That's why he saved you. He did not save you just so you could come and sit in a church service on Sunday morning. You ought to do that out of obedience to the Lord. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. But if the end of it all that you think about your Christian life is sitting in a church service on Sunday morning, you've missed the point. And you've not understood the significance of what God has called you to because it is a pursuit of him. And then a pursuit of him will include these things like the foundational need to worship together as the people of God. And God has given us what we need to pursue him. And then third and finally, we are urged to pray for everyone so that people will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now I want you to look at this passage again with me for a moment and let's note the progression of this passage. We're to pray for everyone and for those in authority so we might experience a tranquil and quiet life. The reason for it is not just so that we can be comfortable, but so that we can grow in godliness. And then as we grow in godliness, we strengthen our testimony with a focus on making Jesus known and faithfully sharing the gospel. That's the progression. It's who we're praying for, how we're supposed to be praying, and most importantly, why we pray. Now notice verse 3. He says, this is good and it pleases God our Savior. Verse 4, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
This kind of prayer is good. It is beautiful and it is pleasant. It pleases God, our Savior. And God's desire is for the salvation of all people. He desires that people would be saved. That's what this verse tells us. In Ezekiel 33 and verse 11, it says, Tell them as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? So from the Old Testament to the New, the message is, that God is the Redeemer. Salvation has always been by faith. It's never been by works. It's never been by keeping of the law. It's always been by faith in God. That's why when Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. It was not credited to him as wages. It was credited to him because he believed in the one who saves. And that's how we're saved as well. God is Sovereign and salvation is 100% a work of God. 100%. We can't add anything to our salvation. We can't improve it. We can't contribute to it. It is all because of the finished work of Jesus. And at the same time, people are responsible to repent and believe. You know what I think Paul meant? When he proclaimed in Acts chapter 17 that God commands all men everywhere to repent. I think he meant God commands all men everywhere to repent. That's what I think he meant. It it is a proclamation of the gospel to everybody. And I like the way uh, John Stott put this. He said in affirming this, Paul may have had in mind those nationalistic Jews who believed themselves to be God's privileged favorites and forgot God's original promise to bless all of the earth's families through Abraham. Alternatively, Paul may have been thinking of elitist Gnostics who reserved initiation into gnosis or knowledge for a select few. He said, in our day, there are other versions of the monopoly spirit of which we need to repent, nationalism, tribalism, classism, parochialism, together with the pride and prejudice which are the cause of these narrow horizons. And then he concludes with this. The truth is that God loves the whole world and God desires that people would be saved. And so God commands us to preach the gospel to all nations and to pray for their conversion. So let me state it to you another way. God has in his heart a love for the people that he has created And he wants people to repent of their sins and believe in his son and be saved. And if this is at the heart of God, if the nations are on the mind of God, if those who are separated from God are significant to him, then should it not follow that we as the people of God would have the peoples who don't yet know him on our hearts? Should it not follow that this would be a priority of the church? And that we would understand what the mission is God has given us. And I want you to notice here that salvation is closely connected with coming to a knowledge of the truth. And I think knowledge is embedded in the idea of conversion. And the truth is focused on the gospel message. Let me explain it this way. Sometimes there are discussions about evangelism and discipleship. And the discussion usually goes something like this. What is the relationship between evangelism and discipleship? And in what order are these things exercised? Now, there's a lot we could unpack there and we won't for the moment. 
but I just want to make this simple point. Evangelism and discipleship go hand in hand. And the reason for that is that the imperative of the Great Commission is to make disciples. And how are we to make disciples? We make disciples through proclaiming the good news about Jesus so that people can repent and believe. And they come and follow him. That was the clarion call of Jesus. Come and follow me. But as they come and follow Jesus, what we are teaching them to do is to observe, to obey all that Jesus commanded. And what is that? It's the knowledge of the truth. And I think the knowledge of the truth is embedded in the idea of conversion, and it is inseparable from it. The reformer John Knox uh, wrote this in his translation of the first Swiss confession. He said, the end and intent of the scripture is to to declare that God is benevolent and friendly-minded to mankind. And that he has declared that kindness in and through Jesus Christ, his only son, that which kindness is received by faith. He said, that is why prayer must be made for all. Because God wants all men and women, therefore must his church so want them. The good news is people may be spiritually blind, but in Jesus they can receive sight. The good news is that people may be in spiritual darkness, but in Jesus they can come to the light. The good news is that spiritually people may be lost, but in Jesus they can be found. They may be living in rebellion, but in Jesus they can live in obedience. They may be sinners, but in Jesus they can be saved. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're proclaiming. And that's what we're believing as the people of God. And it's central to who and what we do, who we are and what we do as a church. Look again now at verse 5 and 6. All of the attention comes to the mediator. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. The only mediator between God and man is the man Christ Jesus. What's a mediator? A mediator is someone who acts as an intermediary to work with opposing sides who are at odds with one another in order to bring about a settlement. It's our sin that separates us from God. And Jesus gave himself as the payment for the penalty for our sins. It was the blood of Jesus that's the payment for the penalty for our sins. And to be the mediator, to qualify as the mediator, he had to be God and he had to be man. And Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And he is eternally so. And he is the one who is our mediator between us and God. Sometimes relationships in this life are complex and volatile. And we need a mediator to step in between two parties. Spiritually, we need a mediator because there's no other way to be reconciled to God. He's the only way. And Jesus stepped in as the only mediator. So here's what that means. Jesus received our sentence. He took our sins upon himself and the judgment of God because of them at the cross. He died in our place. 
He took the sentence that we deserved. The sinless one for sinners. Jesus removes our sin. He represents the sinner. We've already talked about him making intercession for us before the throne of God. And then our hope, our promise is that Jesus will return for the saints. We know he will because God's word says that he will. Paul writes in verse 7, For this I was appointed a herald, an apostle. He said, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now why is it that Paul once again reiterates who he is and his credibility? They were dealing at least in part with false teachers in that church. It's the age-old problem. Wolves that will come in and try to teach things and lead people astray and confuse people. And he says, listen, I was appointed as a herald to proclaim this truth. I am an apostle and I'm telling the truth. I am not lying and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And what does this tell us? Well, by way of Paul's example, how does the good news about Jesus get out to a sinful world? We pray and we share. That's how it gets out. And Paul identified himself as a herald with a special commission as a teacher. So now watch this. God ordains the means. That's prayer. He ordains the message. That's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the kerygma. That's the gospel in a nutshell in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. And he ordains the method of getting this message out. And what's the method? It's us. That's what we're here for. And Jesus died so that people could be saved. So as I come to a close of this message today, I want you to reflect on what we've considered here in these seven verses. And I want you to ask yourself if your life as a follower of Jesus reflects what we are instructed to live like in 1 Timothy 2. And if not, I don't want you to be discouraged. I want you to be encouraged and propelled to say, God, I want to be the kind of Christian you want me to be. I want to pursue you. I want to pray for the lost. And I want to make you known. And I promise you God will answer that prayer. He will answer that prayer and he will do it with power. And that's what we desperately need in the church is the power of the Holy Spirit, not just our own efforts. Father, we thank you today that we've had the opportunity to be here together. We praise you that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The one who left the glory of heaven and came and experienced the mess of this earth for us. Who died on the cross and bore the wrath and the judgment that we deserved. And who was buried and raised on the third day. And who we await his return. Even so come Lord Jesus. But in the meantime as we await your return. Find us faithful. Give us a vision for the world that is comprehensive of the mission you've given us in your word. 
And help us, Lord, to be faithful to the call you've placed on us. God, deepen our prayer lives. Help us to understand what it means to walk with you by faith and to believe your word and trust in your spirit and look to your son as the author and the finisher of our faith. We give this time of closing response over to you. If there are any steps of faith that need to be taken, um, Lord, I pray that people would respond to you appropriately. And we'd give you the glory for any good that comes from it in Jesus' name. Amen.